Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. Close to the end of his early great work, The Monologian, Anselm is going to engage in a very important line of discussion that has to do with our capacity to have knowledge and to fully understand the divine. And Anselm is going to say we can't actually fully understand the divine, which is a bit of a strange thing to say after having gone through a rational exposition, essentially, of the Trinity, which is a pretty deep and difficult notion in Christian doctrine. So you'd think that Anselm would be much more optimistic about the capacities of rational argumentation since he has just employed that for, you know, dozens of chapters before that in the work. But Anselm is taking a very important pause here, and this is rather typical of his approach. He thinks that we can use human reason to a great extent, in fact, greater than many of the other philosophers and theologians out there. He has much more confidence in the capacities of human reason. And yet, he also thinks that it is limited, but it is limited in such a way that we human beings can make sense out of that limitedness rationally, at least to some extent. As a matter of fact, in 64, Monologian 64, he is going to speak in rather paradoxical terms about comprehending the incomprehensibility of something. And that's, you know, rather typical of Anselm's approach. So how does the issue get raised? It gets raised actually back in chapter 36, which he refers back to in chapter 64. Chapter 36 had to do with the, the incomprehensible way in in which the word expresses and also knows, or really those are the same thing, all of created being. And Anselm says, well, you know, we can rationally, you know, get to the point where we, we understand and we explain that this is the case, but precisely how it is the case, you know, what the divine wisdom is in itself, that's not something that we can fully understand. And even the degree to which we can understand it is rather limited. So in chapter 64, he's going to talk about a what's translated here as mystery, a secretum, of so sublime a matter exceeding or transcending, the actual word that he uses there is transcendere, the power of human understanding. So that's one side of it, right? That sounds like, well, we can't really know that much about God when it comes down to it. And yet at the same time, like he says, we have been able to rationally examine and understand the nature of the divine. And we've done quite a lot with it. So let's you know, take a little closer look at what he's saying here. He says, I think someone investigating an incomprehensible thing ought to be satisfied if his reasoning arrives at the knowledge that the thing most certainly exists, even if his understanding cannot fathom how it is is so. He actually goes beyond that, just that it does exist. He says, nor should we withhold any of the certainty of faith from beliefs that are asserted on the basis of necessary proofs and contradicted by no other argument. He doesn't actually use the term argument there. He talks in terms of reasons, necessary reasons. We've employed that to make sense out of the, the nature of the divine substance. 
So he says, now what is as incomprehensible, as ineffable, as the one who is above all things? Therefore, if the conclusions we have reached thus far concerning the supreme essence have been asserted on the basis of necessary reasons, their solid certainty is no way shaken, even though the understanding cannot fathom them, so as to be able to explain them in words. And he says, for if our earlier reflection, that was own, rationally comprehends its incomprehensible, how that supreme wisdom knows the things he made, he goes on further, the key issue here is that we can, in fact, understand to some degree. We can use reason to penetrate into the Socratum, the mystery. Ultimately, for us, incomprehensibility, not in itself incomprehensibility, or ineffability, the inability to, to actually say what the thing is, to, to talk about it meaningfully. We can use our faculty of reason to make some progress into that. But it's always sort of contingent progress, even though it seems to be totally necessary. In another work, the Curtius Homo, written much later on, Anselm will say that you know necessary reasons might be necessary from our perspective, but not truly necessary. And this is a conception that he has running throughout his works. So when we go to chapter 65, where the solution to this is going to be, he's going to reframe the problem. How can something be ineffable and yet rationally understood? This is important because, you know, when we're talking about something being rationally understood, we mean that we're able to bring some intelligibility to it or penetrate into the intelligibility of that thing. So if we've been talking about the divine all this time, what have we been doing? Are we just spinning our wheels? So Anselm is going to make an important distinction here, and this is one, again, that runs throughout his works. One I think that is quite, you know, easy to grasp for most of us. There is explaining the matter to some degree, and they use that word explicare there, but you could also use the word, you know, to reason about, to, to understand, integre, and that's qua tennis, if I remember right, to some degree, right? And that's distinct from, from fully comprehending a thing. So think about, for example, the way it works with medicine. You probably understand some basics of medicine that are, are actually pretty far advanced if we compare them to what they had in Anselm's time. You know, you understand how the blood circulates, you understand how the nerves work, you understand, you know, how sicknesses, of, at least of certain sorts, can be combated. And you probably got that from health class or, you know, reading things on the internet. Who, who knows, right? People telling you. Does that mean that you're a doctor? No. And let's say, let's say we take doctors, right? There's an old joke. What do you call the person who graduated last in their medical class? Doctor. Presumably, they don't know quite so much as the person who graduated first and goes on to an illustrious career and a great residency and all, all those sorts of things. So there, there's degrees in understanding, and it's the same way with the divine. Now we're not talking about just medicine, which by itself is a pretty murky topic, right? But we're talking about something that totally transcends the entire created universe. Is it reasonable to expect that we could fully comprehend it? No. As a matter of fact, if we, the more we think about it, <laughs> the less likely it is that we're going to have that sort of hubris. So he says, if the supreme essence is so much above and beyond every other nature, that even if sometimes words are applied to him that are common to other natures, maybe their meanings are in no way common. He's, he's suggesting that there may be an equivocity here in the way in which we use words of the divine and of the created being. We talk about wisdom. Is the divine wisdom like human wisdom just to the nth degree, just amped up a whole bunch? Uh, that, that's not really applicable. He says, if the familiar 
meaning of words then becomes foreign, right? None of my reasoning applies to him. How then is it true that something has been discovered about the supreme essence if what has been discovered is vastly different from him? My rational understanding that I'm conveying in this book, in Anselm's case, to, to us, the readers, but also to himself through his own reason, because these are meditations, those are not the same thing as the divine being. And there's sort of a disconnect there between the words and concepts that we're using to describe God and the reality of God. This is part of what it means to call God ineffable. So what is the solution here? Anselm gives it in terms of making a likeness, a similitude, right, about likenesses, an image of an image. So there's a bit of meta stuff going on here. He says that we express many things, not just about the divine, but many things about mundane matters in ways that, that are not relying on the distinct characteristics of the thing itself, but rather through some sort of likeness or a riddle or an image, right? He says, we often say many things we do not properly express as they really are. And, you know, you can think about the entire range of metaphor that we use, many of which are old metaphors that we don't even recognize. Think about business speak and, and how much they like to make references to metaphorical things, like we're gonna drill down. Are, are you drilling? Are you actually drilling down into the data that you're looking at? No, it's a, it's a metaphor. It's conveying something through an image that is supposed to connote, you know, a sense of, I don't know, seriousness or getting to the depths of, of things. The irony, of course, is that people, people who say drill down are often, you know, the most superficial thinkers, right? Then it'll be something else five years from now. So we, we express things through, through something else quite often. Now when we turn to God, he says what we say about God, and that includes everything in this book, what we say about God is more through images than through what we're translating here is God's distinctive character of essence through, you know, his proprietas, essentiae, you know, what is actually distinctive to God's being, what is specific to God's being. That is not something that we can express as such in words that are actually adequate to their reference. And so we, we do convey things through images, even when we're carrying out rational examination of these theological objects or, or truths. So he says, we say and see through some other thing. We do not say or see through its own distinctive character. And he says, by this argument, it's perfectly possible for our conclusions thus far about the supreme nature to be true, and yet for that nature himself, nevertheless, to remain ineffable. If we suppose that he was in no way expressed through the, the distinctive character of his essence, but somehow designated through some other thing. And he gives some examples here. Words that seem applicable to that nature do not show him to me through his distinctive character so much as they hint at him through some likeness. What are the examples of that? Divine wisdom. We don't actually fathom the totality of the divine wisdom. We get a little hint of it and we make sense of it by using a word that we use about other people's wisdom, right? And it's not totally adequate, but it gets the job done to a certain extent. So he says, by their meaning, they produce something in my mind that is much less than, that is in fact vastly different from, that which my mind is trying to come to understand through their tenuous signification. 
Now, what is one of the implications of this? When we're doing rational theology, like Anselm is doing, we're not generating something that would be a static set of propositions that then we've got, and this is God, right? This is not the what's often been called the God of the philosophers, the God who is merely just a being who is described by a set of propositions that are assumed to be adequate. This implies that the human being, in order to understand God, to the degree that the human being is going to be able to understand God, is going to have to continue to remain in an active process of seeking, which makes perfect sense for his audience, which is a bunch of monks. So this is his resolution of this problem. How is it we're able to say anything about the incomprehensible, ineffable God? Well, we designate the, the divine through images that don't provide us with the totality of God, but hint. They provide clues about the nature of the divine. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.